Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Well, we've been doing a series in the Gospel of John looking at the, uh, uh, the eight particular miracles that Jesus performs uh, that John talks about. Uh, he only mentions eight. There's 35 distinct and separate miracles uh, recorded in all the Gospels, and we know there are stacks and stacks others. Uh, but um, John actually refers to these as miraculous signs. And so we are, we are looking uh, by way of helping us discover what we have in Christ fully, we are looking at uh, the signs or the, the lessons that we can draw out of these miracles of Jesus because we don't just stop at the sign. We don't just go, well, that was really, really cool that Jesus did that. But recognizing so importantly, there's always a lesson. Jesus is always so intentional in all that he does. So today we're up to the fourth of the eight miracles that John refers to. This is actually one of the best known miracles of Jesus, even for people who um, you know, haven't been to church, don't really read their Bible much. Uh, this one, most people are still familiar with. John 6, starting at verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far side of the sea, at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he'd performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all of the four Gospels. We've got 5,000 hungry people and they are fed miraculously with five small barley loaves and two small fish. So here's the thing. Here we have a huge number of people, 5,000, and that's just the men. And they're hungry, so that's a big problem. There is this huge need, and in the natural, friends, there is absolutely no way to meet that need. But here is the great thing about Jesus. Jesus was able to meet the need. Can I hear an amen this morning? And I want us to discover why Jesus was able to meet that need. And then from there, learn how we can position ourselves in God to see 
God work in what would seem like an impossible situation. Friends, I think this particular event actually teaches us what, one, what might be one of the most important lessons or important aspects of uh, what it is to live fruitfully as a Christian. And, and I want every one of us to catch a hold of this today because if we do, this is a, a key principle in our spiritual growth. This is a key principle for us to be positioned in a way that we see God move sovereignly and miraculously in our lives. We need to back up a little bit uh, to get some context to this story though. Uh, remember last time if you were here, we talked about the healing of a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. Now between that particular event and this particular event that we've read today, there is a dialogue between Jesus and the Jews about why Jesus did what he did, the way that he did, and when he did it. Because the Jewish people were rather angry because the healing of the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda uh, took place on the Sabbath. So they were a little bit upset about that. His response to them was this in John 5 and 17. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. In other words, they tried to criticize Jesus for healing the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. But Jesus responded to accusations by actually deflecting the responsibility away from himself and to his father. And basically what he's saying is this, as uncomfortable as you might be, I am, I healed this man on the Sabbath day, not to make some kind of point, I, I didn't heal this guy on the Sabbath just to get under your skin because I knew that would annoy you and upset you. But listen, basically this. I actually don't have an agenda of my own. And he deflects beautifully to the Father. I don't have an agenda of my own. I do only those things that my Father is doing because I only do the things that please my Father. That is my criteria. In my ministry, I do the things that please the Father. And in verse 30, and this is exactly the same part of the conversation, he says, by myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So in effect, Jesus is kind of inferring this. Uh, don't criticize me when you don't like what I'm doing. And don't congratulate me when you do like what I'm doing because I don't have an agenda. 
It's not about me. I myself, Jesus said in his own words, do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Jesus is saying this. You cannot separate what I do from what the Father does. Because Jesus always related every situation that he faced to his Father. Jesus always related every problem, every crisis that was brought to him. He always related it to the Father. Every opportunity he had, he relates to the Father. And he says, I myself do nothing. That's his position. My Father is the one who is doing the work. And friends, I believe this is the key to Christian living. That we relate everything back to God. That we relate everything back to Jesus. That we bring God in to every area of our life so that we would see God work out through every area of our life. There is an outworking of that. Jesus clearly demonstrated this in his own life. And here we have, I think... Obviously, the disciples have been hearing this teaching. He's been demonstrating this principle to them. And now we come to today's story. And it's kind of like he, he's giving them this little test to see how much they've actually learned. They've heard his teaching. How will they actually now go about putting that into practice? And as we put, pick up our story today, they've come to this place in Galilee, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Philip, we got a problem, mate. There is 5,000 people, 5,000 just the men. Where shall we buy bread for all of these people? And I love the next verse because it says, He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. So when Jesus asked the question of Philip, Philip, he's not actually asking him for advice. He's giving him a test. I can can imagine Jesus saying, Philip, come here, buddy. Look around. Look at this crowd that is following. Uh, It's a big crowd. Yeah, it is Jesus. Uh, Me and the boys... Rough head count. We reckon there's just just the men alone. There's about 5,000 of them. Really? That's a big crowd. The other thing, Philip, obviously, they're really, really hungry. Yeah, I, I know, Jesus. In fact, so am I. Philip, I reckon these people are wondering where they're going to get some food from. Ah, oh, absolutely, Jesus, because me and the boys were actually wondering exactly the same thing. We're all pretty hungry. Well, Philip... How are we going to feed them? How are we going to even begin to go about feeding them? What did Philip do? Well, it says in verse 7, Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So Philip is missing the point. He's not realizing it's a test. He's actually thinking that Jesus is asking him for advice And Philip thinks, I better school Jesus because obviously he failed economics in high school. (laughs) But it was a test. Did Philip pass the test? Sadly, no, he didn't. He didn't pass the test, friends, because all he did was assess the problem from a natural perspective. He's saying, well, here's the problem. 
And here's the resources we have on hand, thinking of the cash they had in hand. And I have determined that this is an impossible situation because the resources that I have cannot possibly address the need. So what does that actually tell us about Philip? It tells us that even though Philip is a committed disciple, he still has so much to learn about the resources that we have available to us in Jesus. Because Jesus might well have said to Philip, listen, mate, let's go back over the conversation we had the other day to that group of Jews that were you know, really coming against us. You heard me say, by myself, I can do nothing. I can only do what my father is doing. So, Philip, what's the lesson there? Where do I take a problem that I face? Where do I take any problem that I face, Philip? Where do I take any situation that I face? Do I take it to myself, to my natural resources, or do I take it to my father? And Philip would have known the right answer to that question. Well, Jesus, you've clearly demonstrated it in all that you do. You take it to your father. Okay, Philip, now what have you just done? You've just looked at this situation through the limitations of your own personal resources. You're counting only on your own ability and you've totally ignored the Father. You've forgotten God. And friends, here's the point. If you and I today try to confront any situation or try to address any problem, just relying on our own strength, just relying on our own wisdom, just relying on our own resources, it actually makes absolutely no difference whether we're a Christian or we're not. Then Andrew chimes in. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Hey, hey Jesus... Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and a couple of little fish. And maybe for just a second, Jesus would have thought, oh, Andrew's onto something here. It's looking good. But then he goes on and blows it. But how, how far will that go among so many? And Andrew, in the same way, he's, he's just like Philip. Andrew has taken two things in consideration. He's taken, number one, the size of the crowd. It's big, 5,000, just the men. Number two, the size of the available resources, five loaves and two fish. Philip's perspective was 5,000 people and a shortage of money. Andrew's perspective was 5,000 people and a shortage of fish. But the missing key in Andrew's assessment of the situation is God as the missing key in Philip's assessment of the situation, is also God's. Did they believe in God? Absolutely, no question. But here they are confronted with a problem and suddenly there's no reference point to God anymore. It's like God had now sort of, in view of the problem, God had become the silent partner. And friends, let me say it is so common and it is a trap and it's so very, very dangerous to slip into a relationship with God where he's just the silent partner. We love God. We worship God. We're committed to God. 
But in reality, the way that we face the trials of life, the way that we face the crises, the way that we face the issues that we're confronted with is that we try to, in our humanness, we try to reduce it to a process where we're managing it on our own. We, we, we try to do whatever we can to deal with whatever it is that we're facing in our own wisdom and our own strength and our own energy. And all the while God is watching on as some kind of silent partner. And here's the reality. I, I guarantee there are people in this room this morning, and I'm not beating up on you because I've been there. And you are in the middle of a critical season in your life. And you're making major life decisions. And you're weighing up options and you're investigating opportunities or you're agonizing over a, a crucial decision and you've never once prayed about it. And in this, we become so similar to the disciples. We face a situation and we analyze the need and then we fall back on our own human resources and human strategies and we try to sort out things ourselves. So much so that if God chose to, and he wouldn't, but if he chose to withdraw his hand from us, we wouldn't even notice. It wouldn't make any difference. If God withdrew, we would still function the same. And we think and we plan and we strategize no differently to anybody else. And as the disciples did, they just thought of the situation in terms of themselves, in terms of their resources, their abilities, their activity, their bank balance and their supply of food. And that's all they thought in terms of and they absolutely accomplish nothing. And friends, here's the challenge. I believe an authentic Christian life is not explained in terms of what I do for God. An authentic Christian life is evidenced by what Jesus is doing through us. Can I hear an amen this morning? Because the focus of true Christian living is not about how religious we are, it's about how living Jesus is and how he is living through us by his Holy Spirit. Because if we can explain the Christian life in terms of ourselves, in terms of what we do and what we think and what we plan and what we accomplish in our own strength and our own self-discipline, we may call ourselves Christians... But I wonder if that is truly living the Christian life. Because, friends, one of the primary characteristics of the Christian faith is faith. That should be what defines us as God's people, that we are a people of faith. And I know we call ourselves a people of faith, but are we truly living by faith? Faith is believing God for something that God and God alone can accomplish. So what did Jesus do with these loaves and fish? And there's something here that's really powerful for us to understand. Uh, now, I do need to just make an apology. I actually uh, referred to this in a message that I did around Thanksgiving last December. 
uh, but this is, a, 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 for the sake of repeating myself, I offer apologies. But this is such a powerful part of the lesson of this miracle. In verse 11, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. And then it jumps to verse 12 and the whole episode is over. When they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So what happened in the course of a couple of verses? What did Jesus do? And Here's what I'm going to suggest, because this key is so profound, yet so simple and so powerful all at the same time. So much so, we can often easily miss it because of the simplicity of it. All it says, the only indicator we have, it says he gave thanks. And that doesn't mean he said grace. It's very, very interesting, as I said, all four Gospels actually recount this miracle. And all four Gospels say the same thing. He gave thanks. And I suggest there is a great, great key in this. What does it mean when he says he gave thanks? We, we think saying thank you is... It's polite. It's good manners. Kids say thank you. Far deeper than that, saying thank you is actually an expression of dependency. Thank you. I was reliant upon you to do that for me. Thank you. Giving thanks is an expression of dependency. So here is Jesus standing before 5,000 hungry people. And as we know, he's already told us clearly, I can do nothing by myself. I've got no trick up my sleeve, but Father, I thank you. You are my sufficiency. And in that spirit of dependency, he begins to break the bread and the fish. It's all passed around and everybody has enough. Now, why do I suggest that this position of thanksgiving is the key to this miracle? Well, it's interesting as you fast forward to verse 22. The next day... The crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. I find that a remarkable account of a miracle. If you were a journalist, there'd be a sense where that's actually poor journalism. Surely what you would want to highlight is where the people ate after Jesus performed the miracle. But I would suggest that John is highlighting that the key to this miracle is this position of absolute dependency upon God that says, God, I am dependent upon you in this situation. Thank you. And I think that's the message that John is emphasizing. Because this is actually uh, so in keeping with how Jesus lived his whole life. 
Jesus lived his whole life in this total spirit of dependency upon God, this spirit of gratitude, acknowledging all the time his dependency upon his Father. And friends, this is exactly how you and I are to live our lives. Colossians 3 and 17, Paul writes, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul's saying, listen guys, whatever you do, do it in a spirit of thanksgiving. So when God calls you to do something and you weigh it up in the context of your own natural resources and you think, no, this is impossible. But if God has laid it on your heart, it's okay to say, God, I can't do this, but thank you because you can And I'm passing the responsibility to you. You're the one who has called me. You're the one that can do this. Thank you. And as I have encouraged you on so many occasions, when you approach God, the language of faith is not please. Oh, please, God, would you do this? Please, God, would you do that? That is the language of uncertainty. It is the language of a beggar. Please, please, please. Friends, the language of faith is thank you. Philippians 4 and 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So again, Paul is encouraging us in in a situation, any situation that would normally frighten you, that would normally make you anxious, instead of allowing fear to well up and anxiety to well up, you just say, Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. This is bigger than me. It's not bigger than you. Thank you, God. This frightens me. It doesn't frighten you. God, this would overwhelm me. It doesn't overwhelm you. And with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. First Thessalonians 5 and 16 says, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will For you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because God likes good manners? No, so much more than that. Whether you are feeling good, whether you are feeling bad, whether the circumstance is pleasant, whether the circumstance is devastating, in everything, our thanksgiving is an expression of our dependency upon God. And notice, He doesn't say thank God for the circumstance. He says thank God in every circumstance. You don't thank him for the problem. You thank him for his sufficiency in the midst of the problem that even in your deepest, darkest moment, there is only one thing that I can do. Jesus, I thank you. And friends, this is exactly how Jesus lived his life 5,000 hungry people, handful of barley loaves and a couple of fish. He turns the attention away from the problem. He turns the attention away from the apparent lack of resources and turns the attention to God. And he says, thank you. And Paul says, in everything give thanks. And this is so simple. But it's so vital for us to understand this. 
The thing that I and so many others have learned as they have followed Jesus is this. Weakness is never, ever a problem to God. In fact, the weaker you are willing to be in the presence of God, it actually allows God to be your strength. To come to him and say, God, I feel weak right now. That's actually in and of itself a position of strength because it's then that God steps in and says, Hey, listen, what you lack, I have. Great expression that I often uh, repeat. You never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. And when Jesus is all you've got, then you realize Jesus is all I need. And sadly, many people can come to church week after week after week, never realize the simplest of lessons. We can come to church, learn, you know, a new song, more doctrine, more scripture. Maybe I can get my way around the Bible a little bit more quickly. But friends, I I think one of the greatest lessons that we can learn is the lesson of thank you. That living in total dependency upon God. Because what happens when you stop depending upon God? Paul talks about this when he's writing to the church in Rome. And the context of this is actually talking about Christians, people who know God. Romans 1 and 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So again, they knew God. These people knew God. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So this is what happened. Their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So he says, these people knew God, but what didn't they do? Quite simply, they didn't live their lives in dependency upon him. They didn't give thanks to him. And when they stopped giving thanks, when they stopped living their lives in dependence upon God, what happened? Your thinking becomes futile. And let me say in the context of our world today, your thinking becomes secularized. It is conformed to the culture around you and the patterns and the thought processes of the culture around us. I had a conversation like this with somebody not long ago who knew God and yet over a period of time has withdrawn in a sense from God and withdrawn from fellowship still says I know God but when they talk their thinking has become so so culturally uh, adaptive and, and everything is not through the perspective of God's word it's, it's this sort of social commentary with a little bit of God thrown in And uh, it's so, so dangerous. Your thinking becomes futile. And I think when our thinking becomes futile or our thinking becomes secularized, to use that term, then you begin to live the way that anybody in your neighborhood lives. You manage your resources the same way anybody else does. You face your problems the same way anybody else does. And then he says, and then their foolish hearts were darkened. That is, there's this light switch that goes off. Because they thought in terms of themselves and their own resources, not in terms 
of God. And friends, again, Jesus in giving thanks was relying entirely on the ability and entirely on the sufficiency of his Father. I can do nothing. I give thanks. You know, Jesus never ever once in Scripture is recorded as having said please to his Father. Isn't that amazing? Never once is it recorded where Jesus is having dialogue with his dad and says, please. He only ever, ever says, thank you. And thanking him expresses two things. First of all, it expresses our total dependency upon God and that it also recognizes the complete, complete, complete sufficiency of God to meet whatever circumstance it is. So as the team comes back, let me ask you this question as I finished. Are you like a Philip or an Andrew? Or perhaps, as Scripture records at times, the whole band of the disciples? Who, although they were witnesses to the teaching of Jesus, witnesses to the miracles of Jesus, although they believed... They still had so much to learn about the sufficiency of God. And as we looked from today's lesson, then this habit in life is to relate everything back to the natural, everything back to our resources. And friends, there's no question that God does use our resources. God used the loaves and the fish. But is that all we rely on? And as you think about your life right now, and this isn't just for the big issues, guys. This is for everyday stuff. For Jesus, for the disciples, on this occasion, it was a big issue. It was 5,000 people, hungry people and inadequate food. But in everything, give thanks for your situation. In your marriage, in your home in your parenting, in your work life, in your business, Monday through Friday, in church life, in relationship, even in relationships with difficult people, in relationships with our friends and family. If we are truly going to grow in God, there has to become within us this, this almost uh, a reflex response that everything is related to the Father. And if it's not yet a reflex response for you that we discipline ourselves to take everything to the Father so that it becomes a habit for us. And friends, we don't do that to somehow wish that everything would go smoothly because we know that's not how God works. That in fact, the greatest lessons of life are learned in challenge and pain and even through suffering. But we relate it back to God to say thank you so that we are actually placing ourselves in the center of God's will and purpose, which helps us with wisdom. And sometimes it takes hindsight to be able to look back and go, you know what, that season that I thought was so painful was actually one of the best things that God ever did. Friends, if we're truly going to grow, we've got to relate everything to the Father.